Shall we pray as we come to God's word? Almighty Father, again, we are in need of your aid and of your spirit to help us as we look at your word once more this evening. And Father, I know that that uh, which is going to come from your word, I need to hear, and not just hear, but to do and to obey as much as anyone else here this evening. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak to all of us, that you would change my heart by your word and change the heart of, of all those who listen and hear. And Father, send us your spirit. Help us to receive your word. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I do ask that you have your Bibles open at that passage that we looked at, uh, that we read from uh, earlier, First Peter chapter 1 and 2. And hope that uh, what was said this morning from God's Word will dovetail uh, with what uh, we're looking at this evening. This morning we looked at uh, reaching the, the, the harvest on our doorstep. And of course that inevitably prompts the question, well, how? How do I reach the harvest on my doorstep? Of course, you could say, well, you can go and do door-to-door evangelism, you can distribute tracts, you can do all sorts of things, and, and we know that, but perhaps there's a, another way that we, we so often overlook or fail to give enough attention to in our lives, and that is essentially being what we are as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, so that those around us might see who we are, to be who we are so that those around us might see who we are. Because when we live out our Christian lives, when they are undeniably evident in our lives, it gives an irrefutable testimony to the truth of the gospel. A lot of people like to argue about various things said in the Bible or various claims made by Christians and the such. But when they see the presence of the gospel undeniably evident in your life, they cannot argue with that because the evidence is clear and it is irrefutable. We need to be who we are so that the world might see who we are. Sadly, I think many of us hide behind a mask. We, we try to be something or someone else instead of simply being what we are. I don't know if any of you have a fish tank at home. I, I was given a, a fish tank for my 12th birthday, and that began my love of fish, and I've almost uh, always had a fish tank uh, since then. I haven't had one for the, the past few years where we lived. It did not make sense to have a fish tank. But, but the reason why I, I love fish is I, I love watching them and, and I, I love observing the way that, that different fish behave. And you can almost uh, identify the fish by its behavior. It's, it's apparent to see. I had a, a tropical fish tank and so the, the neons, the, the red and blue ones, they're, they're pretty chilled out fish. They just kind of sit in one part of the tank. They don't really move around much. They don't dart backwards and forwards uh, around the tank. And then you get something called zebra danios. They're called zebra danios because they have stripes on them like zebras, and, and they're extremely active fish. They're always darting to and fro, almost chasing each other. They're sort of the life of the tank. And then you have the angelfish, who 
often believes it's the king of the tank, and it just sort of serenely floats and and, uh, rules over the tank. And uh, to my horror, I discovered it eats all the other fish in your tank as well. I wondered why they kept disappearing and why the angelfish kept growing uh, until there was only the angelfish left. But, you see, you can identify the fish by their colors, by their marks, and by their behavior. And, and, and it's, it's visible. It's easy to see. The fish cannot change any of those things. But how often as Christians can we be guilty of, of essentially not being what we are as Christians so that we might be a little bit more acceptable to the world, hiding our colors, as it were? Or or compromising our our conduct or our behavior so as to to fit in a little bit more. I think that as we live in a day and age that is becoming increasingly hostile towards the gospel and antagonistic towards Christians, so the challenge for us to live out our Christian lives becomes all the more important. So that what we proclaim and how we live are one and the same. Because again, when we do that, it gives the world an irrefutable testimony to the truth of the gospel in our lives. We need to be who we are. And and Peter tells us wonderfully in this passage exactly who we are. 1 Peter is one of my favorite New Testament letters. Uh, I say that about all the letters, but I really mean that about 1 Peter. I, I love how, how Peter is, is, is realistic. Uh, he realizes that we live in a world surrounded by unbelievers, and, and therefore he gives us such practical advice throughout his letter as to how we should live out our lives. He starts his letter on a, on a magnificent high point. It's, it's, it's almost reminiscent of Ephesians chapter 1. This is sort of Peter's version of it. These, these, these wonderfully loaded, packed uh, gospel statements that, that sort of compress the, the whole message of the gospel into these short, punchy verses. He talks about our, our incredible salvation that was, that was written in eternity past and has been carried out to perfection by Christ, and it's, it's kept secure. We have this wonderful inheritance kept for us in heaven, and we are being kept for it, and, and in this we greatly rejoice, and of course we, we all look forward to that day when we'll receive that inheritance. But then Peter becomes very realistic with us, and he says, this is wonderful, and we, we look forward to that day, but now well, now we are, we are grieved by various trials. We are, we're tested, we're, we're tried. Our, our faith is being examined and, and, and put under pressure. So, so how is it that we should then live in light of this magnificent salvation in a world that puts us under pressure and examines us and scrutinizes us? And essentially his answer is, well, be who you are. Take hold of your identity and then seek to live it out. And then this identity that we see in these uh, first in, in these in this passage is, is twofold. The first thing that Peter tells us that we should be is, is, is we should be God's children. We should remember that God the Father 
is our Father. Look at at chapter 1 and verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. Peter states that we are to show ourselves to be God's true children and that God is our true Father. Well, how do we achieve this? Well, we achieve this by being like our Father. For those of us as parents, uh, we see how our children become like us just like we have become like our parents. As a child, I can remember, I used to to absolutely hate the common answer my father would give to the question, how long? How long, Dad, until we get there? How long must we wait? And his standard answer would always be, as long as a piece of string. It used to drive me mad. Now, Joel and Rachel are giggling in the front row here because, well, what's my standard answer to the question, Dad, how long? I find myself repeating the very thing I used to hate. How long, Dad, until we do this or that? As long as a piece of string. And those who know me, and Dave and Sheila can attest to this, that I resemble a likeness to my father. If you see my father and you see me standing next to him, you will say he is very clearly related. They are father and son. There is a family resemblance. I wonder if the world sees the same in us. We say God is our father and we are his children. Do they see the family connection? Do they see the resemblance of the heavenly Father in us? Do they see that we are like our Father God, that we are like Christ, our eldest brother? There is a family resemblance. I, I love Acts chapter 4. It's, it's a passage that challenges me deeply. Uh, John and Peter are on trial before the Sanhedrin, the the same group of men that that handed Christ over to be crucified. An incredibly intimidating crowd to be brought on trial before. And and John and Peter are are on trial for for having, uh, in Christ's name, healed this man and proclaimed the gospel. And yet, they display an incredible calmness a humility, but at the same time a courage and a boldness in speech. And after they give a defense of their actions, this is the reaction of the Sanhedrin, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. 
Are there two ways that we could understand that word recognize? They could have recognized Peter and John physically. I remember seeing Jesus perhaps in the countryside of Galilee and remember Peter and John tagging along with Jesus and therefore remembering that occasion. Or it could be that they recognized the clear influence of Jesus on the lives of these men. Now, both interpretations I would be legitimate, but, but I lean towards the second because of, of what precedes it. They look at Peter and John and they realize something about these men. These men are uneducated men. They're just common, working-class men. How is it that they are able to remain calm under such scrutiny and yet speak with incredible boldness, conviction, and authority? Why are they not intimidated? Why are they not backing down? Why do they continue to speak with boldness and conviction? And perhaps it's then that they remember, where have we seen this before? Where did we see this not so long ago? And a man called Jesus of Nazareth. John and Peter are like this because they have learned it from Christ. The mark of Jesus is clear upon these men that they can see it. They can see the family connection. They bear the stamp of Jesus upon their lives. You know, I wonder, do you you bear that family resemblance? When people see and, and look at your life, they're able to say, I can see that you are a child of God. And that God the Father is your Father. Because when the, when the Bible speaks about God the Father and, and what He is like, I see that in your own life. I see that mirrored and it's clear to see. We should be like our Father. The world should see that we are God's children. The second aspect of our identity that they should see is that we are the true people of God. Now, that might sound like the the same thing I've just said, just a different word. But if we look at this passage, we see that there's a difference because we're described as God being our Father and being as God's children in chapter 1. But then in chapter 2, Peter changes his language, and he begins to speak about us as being God's people, as those who have this special relationship with God. And you look at all the ways in chapter 2 that that Peter uses to describe us. He calls us living stones, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This is who we are. Now, living as a Christian, living a life that is clear for everybody to see, that is a Christian life, is challenging for all of us. And, and books upon books have been written about the subject. And I'm sure more will be written. And yet, it, it doesn't seem to matter how many books we read on this, it still remains to be a challenge, and we fail more often than we succeed. Now, I'm sure many of these books are good and and are helpful, but I'm convinced that that much of the problem for us does not lie in our methods, doesn't lie in the, the program or the steps that we take to try and be good Christians. 
I believe the fundamental problem lies in how we think about ourselves. When we wake up in the morning, if, if someone was to be standing by our bedside, when we woke up in the morning and asked us the question, who are you? I imagine we would not like to be asked that question first thing in the morning, but who are you? Well, what's the first answer that comes to mind? How do we define ourselves? Who do we say we are? Now, indulge me for a moment here. What, how would the average English person define themselves? Of course, I'm going to make some sweeping generalizations here. But they'll probably say, oh, well, I'm English. I'm, uh, I'm fundamentally a good person. I do more good things than bad things. I'm a nice, decent, law-abiding person. Uh, I think, you know, we should just all work hard to get along with everybody uh, you know, be kind, uh, be tolerant. If you ask them, well, what's your, what's your passion? What's your desire in life? Well, maybe for some it will be their football club. Uh, maybe for others it's, I want to be financially secure and, and comfortable. That's, that's of, of real importance to me. That's how most people would define themselves. They define themselves by, well, what's, what's important to them? What matters most to them, and what they are spending their lives in the pursuit of. What's of primary value to me, and, and what am I pursuing after? That's generally how we define who and what we are. Now, consider the words that Peter has used to describe us as believers. In essence, if you're, if you're asking Peter, who are we? Peter's saying, who are you? You're living stones, you're a spiritual house, you're a holy priesthood, you're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you're a people for God's own possession. That is who you are. But how often do we think of ourselves as that? How many times would we have to ask each other the question, who are you, before we would come to that answer? If we're honest, we probably don't often think about ourselves in those terms. And I think that's why living a clearly visible Christian life is challenging for us. Because it's not how we essentially define who we are. Think about what difference would it make to our lives if we actually sought to be the people that Peter describes here. I think, it would make a, I think it would make a huge difference. Because we would stop trying so hard to fit in or to disguise who and what we are, trying to go with the crowd, trying not to rock the boat. Uh, so we would stop trying to be like our idols. We'd stop trying to, to pursue after the world's definition of success. Because I said, well, that's not who I am. Why should I spend my life trying to be those things, trying to do those things, when that's not who I am? And that if, if, I, if I pursue after those things, and if I define myself by those things, I'm actually settling for something far, far less than what I have in Christ, than who I am in Christ. The world should see who we are clearly. 
that we're living in this world, but we're not, we're not of this world. Our, our passports might say that we're British citizens, but our hearts say that we are citizens of heaven, that we, we, we are people of God. That they see that individually in our lives and then corporately as the gathered people of God. And that when they, when they look at our lives and they see the people of God, they realize there is something richer and deeper and more joyful. There's something attractive about it. I mean, that's, that's exactly what, what, what Israel was asked to do. Be a light unto the nations. Live out what it means to be the people of God because when you do that, the nations will look and see and wonder, how is it? That you are the nation that you are. And they're able to say, well, it is because our hope is not in a human king and in laws written by human hands. No, our hope is in God as our king and in his word that he has, has given to us. That, that same, same challenge comes to us. For the world to, to look at our lives and, and see who we are and, and be drawn to it. They should see that which is richer and deeper and more joyful and attractive. They should see that in our lives individually and corporately. When, when, we, when we just do life, how, how do we as believers individually and corporately respond in times of crisis? How do we respond in the COVID pandemic? How do we respond to the present events in the Ukraine? Where is our hope? Where do we draw our confidence from? They should see how we respond in times of joy, when, when children are born, when, when people are married, when special events are celebrated. They should see how we deal with suffering and pain and loss and grief, perhaps when we're diagnosed with a serious or even terminal illness or when loved ones die. How do the people of God deal with that? They should watch our relationships. How do, how do, how do the people of God, how do, how do God's sons relate to God's daughters whether it's in a relationship of friendship or in a relationship of, of marriage. How do we treat each other? Especially when the world around us is, is falling apart and there's divisions all around, and yet the people of God appear to be united. When the world is overflowing with hate, but the church is abounding in love. When the world is, is filled with, with exclusion and yet there is acceptance and unity within the church. As the world observes all this, when they see the testimony of our lives, when they see that we are the children of God, our Father, that we are the people of God, both individually and corporately, it presents them with a testimony that is clear and irrefutable. And when they see that, that Peter says, when, when they see that, they can only draw one conclusion. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. In other words, be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable. Devout your lives as the, the people of God, people who are, who are to declare the praises of Him. 
offering up your lives as a spiritual act of worship. When you do that, even though they, they speak against you as evildoers, even though they malign you and mock you and ridicule you because that's how you live, when they see your good deeds, when they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They should be left with only one conclusion. You are the person you are. You live the way you live because you are the children of God and the people of God. That's the only logical explanation and conclusion they should be able to draw. The identity of God the Father is stamped upon us. We resemble our Father. We live as the people of God, His people, His nation, and therefore we appear as fundamentally different. But the reason for our difference so abundantly clear because of who we are. In summer last year, I was visiting a friend who who lives and works in a very unique and difficult part of the world. It's a place that is extremely closed off to the gospel. In fact, anyone who calls themselves a Christian is immediately treated with suspicion uh, and looked down upon, regarded as immoral people, people to be avoided. And I asked them, I said, what is the key to ministry in this area, in this part of the world? And he said to me, almost without a pause to think, he said, when you arrive here, and people find out you are a Christian, if they do not clearly see the truth of Christ in your life, you will not live here long enough to tell them about it. If they cannot see who you are, clearly you will not have the opportunity to tell them about who you are because they will not listen. They will know that you come proclaiming this, but it is not evident in your life. And when he said that to me, a a memory popped into my mind from from 20 years ago. It was my first year of Bible college. It was our first missiology class. Uh, Our lecturer, uh, now an elderly retired man, had had served for decades in the remote jungles of Thailand. He and his wife moved out there shortly after the Second World War. And in that first lecture, he shared with us about his first few months and years in this remote village. When he and his wife arrived, the the missions organization that they were with had had arranged that one of the huts be set aside for them to live in. And so they they were led to this new home, this new house. And he said when he and his wife saw it, they were shocked. It wasn't made out of bricks and mortar. It didn't have a door you could close on it. It didn't have windows that you could pull the blind down. No, it just had an opening where the door was, an opening where windows were, and, and the rest of it was made out of bamboo. And the bamboo itself wasn't woven together into a nice mat. No, it was, it was just in a, a loose arrangement of, of bamboo sticks, but you could see through the gaps in the walls. He said it was like living in a fish tank. Everyone could see what you were doing all the time. didn't matter what you were doing. 
Everything you did in your home was on clear display for everyone to see. Now, their arrival in this remote area created quite a stir. People like this had had never lived in this part of the world. And so he said not only did they have to come to terms with the fact that they were living in a fish tank house, but they had a constant audience. People would come and just sit outside their house and watch them. Because, of course, they behaved in different ways. They dressed differently. They spoke a different language. It was intriguing. It was a, 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 an object of curiosity to the people. And so he said every, every day there would just be people sitting outside their house watching them. And he said to us that was the first time in his life that he understood how important it was for him to actually be what he claimed to be. He claimed to be a believer in Jesus Christ, to be a child of God and part of the the people of God. And he needed to show that. He wasn't proficient enough in the language uh, to be able to proclaim the gospel at that point, but he realized he could live it out. And so he suddenly became very conscious of, of how he was living. The small things, how he he got dressed, how he ate his food, over to the more important things. How did he speak to and treat his wife? How did he relate to his children? How did he relate to guests, both wanted and unwanted, that would just come into his home? He understood that if he was ever to reach this village the gospel of Jesus Christ, his first and most important task was to show them what it looked like in his life. Because in the months to come when he would be able to speak to the people and be able to speak from God's word and tell them about Christ, that they would not see a disparity between what he was proclaiming and how he had lived amongst them. He said he understood how important it was that how he lived and what he wanted to say to them would be one and the same. And by God's grace, he enabled him and his wife to live out their faith. And in the months to come, as, as they, they shared the gospel with the people in that village, and as they began to come to faith, so they heard the testimony of these villagers saying, we watched how you lived. And before you even told us about Jesus, we saw him in you. For me as as a believer, I I can't actually think of of an essence a greater endorsement than receiving that. And having our neighbor say to us, you know, before you told me the gospel... I saw Christ in you. It was, it was so obvious that, that you are a child of God. That, that's the only way that, that can explain why you, you speak to your children the way you do, why you, you, you treat your wife the way you do, how you even respond to me when, when I do things that I know annoy you. Or our work colleagues to say, I, I can see that you are a true Christian. It's, it's evident. You, you didn't have to tell me. We live in a world where it is, it is becoming increasingly difficult to tell people about Jesus. 
where, where before we even open our mouths and utter his name, they're already putting up their hands and putting their fingers in their ears and saying, I'm not interested, I'm not interested. Therefore, I'm convinced that it's becoming more and more important for us to be who we are so that the world might see who we are. And so tonight, the challenge comes to all of us. Are you being who you are? Is there that family resemblance? Are you like your father? And can people clearly see that you are part of the people of God? Let us be who we are so that the world might see who we are and glorify God. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this incredible redemption that you have given us in Jesus Christ. A redemption that did not come at a small cost. It was not paid for with silver or gold. It was purchased through the precious eternal blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a salvation that has drawn us into the most incredible, eternal, magnificent relationship with you where we get to call the God of the universe our Father. That we get, to, we get to, 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 to speak to God the Son as our brother. That we know God the Holy Spirit as our teacher, our counselor, and our comforter. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful salvation you have gifted to us, and, and one that is not just for this life, but, but stretches out in eternity to come, and it's been kept, it's been held secure by us. We know it shall be ours, and we shall enjoy it forever. We thank you for that which you have given us. You've changed us. You've transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You've taken rebels and made them your children. As John says, you have caused us to become the children of God. The people of God. So Father, help us to now show the family resemblance. Help us to be identifiable as the people of God so that the world might see Christ in us and therefore glorify you. Father, we ask tonight, take our lives and use them to be a powerful testimony to the truth of the gospel as you conform us to the image of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We're going to close by singing number 830, Take My Life. And again, I trust that you'll be able to sing this not just in spirit of, of truth and of worship, but also as the prayer of your heart, asking that God might...